You're listening to a DM podcast. Welcome to The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. As an author, ad man and theologian, I've always been interested in people's stories. Not just those with a high profile, but people from all walks of life, regardless of fame. Which is why I created this show. Each guest who takes the Five of My Life challenge chooses a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. It's amazing what you can learn when discussing someone's five choices. I hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as I enjoy making it. Ross Coulthard is a five times winner of Australia's National Journalism Prize, the Walkley Award. Winner of a Gold Logie for Best Public Affairs TV Reporting and winner of a Gold Medal for International Investigative Journalism at the New York Film Festival. Alongside his three decades of multi-award winning journalism, Ross is also the best-selling author of six books. Always interested in unearthing a good story, Ross's latest book, In Plain Sight, is a fascinating investigation into the controversial subject of UFOs. So, Ross, welcome to Five of My Life. It's a pleasure to be here, Nigel. Well, mate, uh, on your website, uh, there's a quote that's pulled out in highlights that says you are always interested in a good story. And that is what we are about here at Five of My Life. Uh, And your choices, your first three, are taking us through the 70s, 80s and 90s. I'm showing my age. (laughs) And we are starting, as we always do on Five of My Life, uh, with the Steven Spielberg 1978 Empire of the Sun movie. Uh, Tell us why you've chosen that on Find My Life. I only ever saw Empire of the Sun the first time when I was about 25 years old and I found myself weeping on the sofa watching it. And Why were you weeping? Because it's a story about a little boy who got separated from his parents in Manchurian China when the Japanese invaded and he was put away in a um, prisoner of war camp or a detention camp during the war. And this actually happened. It happened to J.G. Ballard, the novelist who who wrote the book that inspired the film. And it's funny because I, like you, I don't know whether you are a victim of this, but I was a victim at the age of nine years old of being sent away to boarding school, private boarding school. Five for me. Right. And I remember this incredible sense of dislocation and isolation that in those days they thought built resilience in young boys. And I just remember it completely destroyed the relationship I had with my parents. And there's a, there's a great moment at the end of Empire of the Sun where the Jim character, the boy, is looking for his parents and they're doing these reunions. There's, uh, I'm crying thinking about it, you know. And um, his mother and father are looking through the crowd after three or four years of war for their little boy. And, of course, he's grown up. And um, I think the actor who played him is Christian Bale, I think it's Christian's best ever performance. And um, there's this sad moment when his mother recognises him and he can barely make her out. And it was that point I can remember. I was 25 years old and I'd locked it all up for, you know, whatever it was, eight or nine years. And all those feelings of isolation and divorce from my family and my parents came flooding back. I would never put my kids through private boarding school. It's a horror of a thing to do to a child. 
And, um, you know, I love my parents deeply and respect them for the decisions they made. But, oh, my God, was it a misguided decision? Wow. I mean, I, I, I didn't know that about you. And that that is one of my uh, sort of – Kate thinks – my, my wife thinks I've never recovered. Yeah, right, me, right. me neither. Yeah. And, and what I say to <laughs> all my – all my progressive trendy friends who were in the therapy is I'm scared to go to therapy. So I think repression gets a bad press. <laughs> I, 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 I have locked it all up. Yeah. yeah. At the age of five, you're sent away. I mean, my school, unfortunately, run by a paedophile, Robin Lindsay. Who, well, who, there were paedophiles yeah. at my school. Yeah. I mean, uh, there was a good mate of mine. I won't never name him, of yeah. course, but he came to me a few years ago and said he wanted me to help find the paedophile who'd raped him at mm. school. Yeah. And we ended up getting onto the police force in another country and, and informing them about this guy. And guess what? He was running a lolly shop. No, don't. Don't. Um, so how many brothers and sisters have you got? I've got three sisters and one brother. And were they all shipped off to boarding school? Yeah, we all were. And, in, and, and, and where? Uh, all in New Zealand. So my, my dad was convinced there was going to be a nuclear war. And so we emigrated from the UK when I was a little boy. And he moved to New Zealand. Very wise decision, actually. It's a beautiful country. And I grew up there riding horses and walking in the bush and learning how to live on the land. And it was a great childhood. So the the decision, because my folks, I I give them a free pass because they were military. And if, if you're a military, and, and we don't have any money, if, you, if you're a sort of a poor military family, you, you, you've got a choice between your, your I've got one brother, your, your two sons having three years German, three years American, three years Belgium, three years English education in the government school. And, and that might not be the best because where do you live? Or you go, oh, it will be uh, sort of solidity if they go to one place. Which would be a boarding school prison run by a paedophile. Yeah, but I can see why yeah, they, they go, are we going to move them around? But there were some people in my dormitory who, there's one person, I shouldn't laugh, it's just barbaric, who could see the lights of his parents' house through the door. You go, why have you sent him here? Yeah, you you my, could my, go home for tea. My parents lived half an hour away. No, no. I can tell wow. you, I'll, tell, I'll tell you one sorrowful story. Was, <laughs> oh, I, I no. remember multiple times because my da- mum and dad never understood the fact that they had to participate in school life and they were, <laughs> they were very retarded socially shy british people <laughs> and they hated the idea of coming to school functions and so frequently i was the only boy on a weekend and the whole school had gone out with their families to go around the town and do things and frequently i was completely isolated and look i think it defined me to be honest because it did make me resilient in a horrible way you know it made me emotionally brittle and i learned with the love of my beautiful wife kerry to actually learn how to overcome that but the um the the thing it does i think and it's interesting you've had the same experience men don't talk about it but there is an entire generation of men who have been brutalized by the experiences of their childhood as children, isolated from the love of their families and their siblings. And uh, I, I just think it's barbaric. So, so I, mate, I, I never knew this about you. We, mm. we, we have lived, lived parallel childhoods. Uh, and the, the truth, I mean, I imagine it was the same for you if your mum and dad were English, is you don't get help. You just suck it up. You, you say goodbye to your five-year-old in shorts at an American airport and you fly unaccompanied, B-O-A-C, into the love and care of a paedophile for 15 weeks. You can't <laughs> leave the school grounds. Yeah. We had people, um, uh, you know, we had people suiciding. We had people running away. I know people who uh, have spent their latter life 
trying to prosecute the paedophile headmaster and, and, and then he got dementia and he died. But, but you, they never, ever, ever recovered. And for me, I don't want to go into the damage it's done me yeah. because because it's sort of working for me, touching me at the moment, you know, locking it all away. But, you know, the thing that fascinated me was when I came to Australia, because I'd lived in New Zealand for a large part of my life, everybody tried to identify through sport with me like most Australians do. And I was always the swatty, deeply intellectual boy at school. And for that, I was brutally bullied. Oh, mate. And I remember I was thrown out of a second-story window, and oh. I suffered an injury to my arm. And I remember the headmaster. I'd actually said I wanted to make a complaint of assault. Mm. And the headmaster came to see me to sort of advise me, old chap, you know, not a good idea. You know? mm. And I remember there was a cover-up. My parents were never even told. Mm. And I remember thinking, what an appalling institution. The moment where I just realized how evil it was was when my one of my very dear friends came to me and told me that he'd been sexually abused mm. by the choir master. Yeah. And uh, it was covered up. And I did an investigation for him to find out where this guy was. And it turned out this wretched bastard had gone through about four other boys' schools through this country and sexually abused boys. And he'd always been allowed to move on from each school. And this friend of mine had never told me what he'd been mm. through. And I was a chorister with him. And the sad thing was he'd never shared his experience. And um, I, to this day, I, I don't think I could ever forgive that school. And I still get pleas for money to build their bloody chapel. Yeah, uh, and um, I'd rather put a bomb under it. So, so there, there was a documentary made about my school and, and how it, it, he could possibly have been able to get away with it. For his, his whole career. Right. He, 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 you know, his father ran the school. And then when he left university, he went, became the deputy master when his father died. It just, you know, how could this be happen? And the police chief, really interesting, <laughs> said that many of the parents didn't want to make a fuss. Yeah. So I remember my, my dad, who adored, brilliant, gorgeous, lovely man. But when I said to him, uh, dad, you know, we used to have to call him Mr. Robin. Uh, Mr. Robin, you, you know, he takes the boys' showers and there's a, uh, you know, a rumour he's buggering the boys. I'm sure I didn't use that word then, right? He ruffled my hair and said, what's wrong with my son that he hasn't chosen him? Oh, my God. Now, now he was, that, that's just, that is a military bloke who has no relationship with his children, no idea what to do, or indeed take it seriously. It's like that Monty Python sketch, you know. You know, what's wrong with a good Roger taking <laughs> <And> it? <that's, laughs> it, it? It's sort of, if, if he's passing his exams and, and he isn't, you know, identifiably self-harming, well, let's not make a fuss. But it really struck me because I worked, briefly in the UK, and I was really struck by how the, the generation of people that I met in leadership and in positions at high levels in business, they were all traumatized yes, like I was. 100%. And there's a common, I mean, I think there's a mutual sort of trauma survivor uh, look that we all have yeah. with each other, a demeanor. And it's a guardedness. It's a it's a kind of an emotional guardedness. And I, I freely admit, my friend, I've I've been very. I've had it very hard to form good relationships oh, and mate, friendships. This is so. I'm, I'm feeling a bit of a bromance now because because me too. Mm. It, it, and and there, there was some Colonel Blimp idiot who I was talking to. Uh, this is 30 years ago. Who was trotting out the line? It builds character. And I said, you know what, mate? You are right. It absolutely does. But what type of character? You moron. Of course it builds. You've got a choice. You go, I'm five. There are people being killing themselves, running away, being buggered by the headmaster. I'm either going to sink or swim, so I will 
swim and, and make us try and make a success of it and go with it. But I'd rather not be a really resilient, resourceful five year old. I'd rather have a teddy bear and be tucked up at bed by mum and dad. There's a there's a friend of mine who's now a, a cabinet minister in another country and I remember weeping myself to sleep because I was so homesick. And I remember he was an identical twin and he was cuddling his brother and both of them were crying for their parents. No, I don't. And I think they, they, were, they were eight and a half and I was nine. Yeah. And none of us could understand why we'd been sent away to this bloody yeah. school. God help these poor people if they haven't fixed themselves up, how they deal with their children. That's yeah. the issue. So, second choice, mate. We're moving from the 70s to the 80s, and I've got this monstrous, huge tome uh, in front of me. Um, wow. Pulitzer Prize winning classic, A Bright Shining Lie, Neil Sheehan, is that how you pronounce it? Sheehan. 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 About the Vietnam War, it melted my brain. Tell me why you chose that on Find My Life. It's the book that probably more than any other piece of journalism influenced my decision to go into journalism. Uh, Neil Sheehan was the guy who was leaked the Pentagon Papers by Daniel Ellsberg, who's a man who only died a few weeks ago. And Daniel Ellsberg leaked the Pentagon Papers and uh, Neil was the beneficiary. And it was the revelation of research that had been suppressed by the Pentagon, the US Defense Department, which showed just how wrong and badly conducted and misguided the Vietnam War was. And it fascinated me because... I'm intrigued by the relationship that Neil Sheehan built with his source, a guy called John Paul Van. Van was an absolute superhero in the eyes of most of his colleagues in Vietnam. He'd started out in 1962 as a soldier, a combat soldier, as a lieutenant colonel with the US infantry. And he'd gone in to conducting the war in the way that he was being told the war needed to be conducted to get rid of these damn pesky communists in, in Vietnam. And he very gradually, because he was a deeply intelligent working class boy from rural Virginia, he began to realize that it was a completely misguided war. And as a lieutenant colonel, he, he developed positions of trust with very senior commanding generals, including General Westmoreland, the commanding general of Vietnam. And uh, what happened basically was he quit as a soldier, as a combat soldier, and then came back, I think, in 1965 as an advisor with AID, which was essentially a development, um, a bit like our Ausaid. And he eventually became the equivalent of a major general, tacitly running the war in collaboration with a South Vietnamese general. And he was probably the second or third most powerful person in Vietnam running this war. And sadly, he came to the growing realization that the war was utterly, utterly misconceived and misguided, that it was unwinnable on the conventional strategies. Because what they were doing, of course, was bombing the blazers out of Vietnam. They were destroying the, the loyalty in any kind of sense that the civilian population might have had that the South Vietnamese government could be a legitimate government. And what they were doing was pushing them into the arms of the communists. And Neil Sheehan was a young correspondent based in Saigon covering the war for his newspaper. And John 
John Van was essentially the the very senior officer who, like a lot of American officers do, took a very liberal view to briefing the media. It's something our military don't do in Australia. They're very guarded and every officer in Australia is inculcated with a deep loathing and distrust of the media. But as I've found when I've embedded with Americans in Iraq and Afghanistan in combat zones, they're very willing to engage and to think privately about what they're thinking about the war. That's what inspired me. The story of John Paul Van, the very senior officer who was running the war in Vietnam, and the journalist who was essentially his confidential confidant. It's had great echoes for me because I've covered wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as a reporter, and I have built friendships and relationships with very senior American officers, including one a guy called Todd Clark, who it's interesting, it's literally the 10th anniversary of his death. And Todd was a lieutenant colonel. I met him in Baghdad, in the streets of Baghdad, and because I'd just come back from inspecting a, a civilian area called Dora, where cluster bombs had been dropped. And it's interesting, the current debate that's going on as to whether or not the Americans should use yep. cluster bombs with Ukraine. And I remember being disgusted that the Americans had dropped cluster bombs in a civilian area. And we interviewed a woman whose little boy had been killed uh, when he was walking through this area of cluster bombs. We even found the canister that had contained these cluster bomblets, and it had the name of the factory in it. Mm. And we contacted the factory, and of course they didn't want to know anything about us. But I said, I just want you to know that your bomb killed a beautiful little boy who loved America, mm. and his mother is weeping in Dora today. And Anyway... As a result of walking through that battlefield, I met this guy called Todd Clark, who was killed in a blue-on-blue attack. He was shot by one of the Afghan soldiers that he was training uh, 10 years ago, pretty much today. And um, the, the interesting thing is it had real parallels for me. I found it quite uncanny how I've gone into these places like Iraq and Afghanistan, and senior American commanders have actually said to me, well, the war is a folly. We don't know why we're here. It's crazy. What we're doing is we're ostracizing the population with our strategies. And the thing that Bright Shining Lie says to me is we've continued to fail all the way through. Our country has embraced the wars that America has taken us into since Vietnam, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. We often demonize and make evil the people who conduct these wars, and they're often deeply intelligent men and women. And I've had conversations with people like a John Paul Van, who I personally think was utterly misguided in his ideas that the Vietnam War could be won. I'm fascinated with the history of Vietnam and how not a lot of people know that Ho Chi Minh reached out to the CIA yes. yeah, yeah. and said that he wanted to be a friend of America. Right. And because he was supposedly a communist, when in fact he was a nationalist, they rejected it. And that misguided application of US hatred of communism led to the polarization that led to the most disastrous war in recent history. But how has it influenced your journalism? It's made me deeply, deeply, deeply skeptical about the way that the media cheerleads foreign policy decisions like wars. I was deeply affected in 2003 when I was sent to Iraq by Channel 9. I was literally in Baghdad within a few weeks of the war, and it became very, very clear that there were no weapons of mass destruction. 
And we'd been told we had to go to Iraq as a coalition with the US to liberate these poor people from a tyrannical leader who was building nuclear weapons. And it was a lie. And worse still, there were people in the US intelligence community who knew that the intelligence that this was based on, it was bollocks. You know, they knew that it was doubtful. It was information that came from a guy called Ahmed Chalabi, who ran the Iraqi National Congress, the INC, which was a very Iran-allied lobby group inside Iraq. And ironically, Iraq is now more closely aligned with Iran because of the folly of the American foreign policy in Iran, in the same way that the war in Vietnam was a disastrous war because it essentially threw Vietnam into the arms of the Soviets. And I mean, it's only because the um, Vietnamese are more rapacious capitalists than we are that they've basically embraced the West as well. And we now do trade and thankfully have good friendships with them. And the thing is, we haven't learned the lessons of what Neil Sheehan's book describes. Who is the American politician who tried to get a law passed that you could only vote on going to a land war if you had a uh, son or daughter serving in the teeth arm? <laughs> I, I can't remember. Was it that, Edward Kennedy? I can't so remember. So yeah. brilliant. It's a great but, idea. Isn't that yeah. fact? You go, you know, it's, it's very, oh, someone else is going to die. And there's one of the stories in here that the awful My Lie, the village where 500, oh, it's just appalling, you know, everyone knows about it. Um, but you go, that massacre of women and babies uh, by the American troops in, in that appalling instance, you go, well, so that was 500 people that because there was a newsman there and you saw it and it was you can identify. You go, yeah, but the day before we killed 2000 with a bomb from a, you know, and the day before that we killed 3000. And just because you could see it, that's what it means. It's real families yeah. having their heads blown off. I, I think everybody in military college should be forced to read yeah. Neil Sheehan's book because John Paul Van whilst he was a misguided man, I believe, driven by a, an absolute hatred of communism. We're, we're sitting at the very moment on the brink of war with China. I could not think of anything more insane. And there was a breath of fresh air the other day when Bob Carr, the former premier, former foreign minister, came out and actually said he doesn't think a Chinese invasion of Taiwan warrants the consequences that would ensue if Australia allied itself with America and went to war with China. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> it is insane. And we're going to leave the insanity and we're going to move you from the 80s to the 90s to your song on Five of My Life. And you have chosen one of my wife's favourite songs, the ship song. Come sail your ships around me. Tell us why you have chosen that on Five of My Life, Ross. Uh, I love Nick Cave because he's a deeply spiritual man and he's very open about his belief in God. Uh, I'm not a Christian myself, but I admire the fact that he's welcome, to, he's welcome to talk about it and he's open about it. And I also love the ship song because it's an expression of love and it's the song that my wife and I played at our wedding for Aww. our wedding dance. How did you meet the fantastic, delightful Kerry? Uh, Kerry and I were both covering Chuck and Die. Uh, they were visiting Sydney. I was following H Harry Arnold and Arthur Edwards from the London Sun for <laughs> Jan Event's program at, at Channel 9. 
and we were doing a story about the the tabloid British press chasing the royals. Right. And Kerry was the very proper and incredibly hardworking 2GB Macquarie Radio News reporter doing live reports every five <laughs> minutes. Yeah. And I remember hearing her describing Lady Di's dress and it was something like a pink silk taffeta dress and Kerry's going – it's a pink silk taffeta dress with a bow on it. <laughs> and it was the expression of incredulity that she was doing on a live radio broadcast that made me realize I loved this woman. And uh, um, we fell in love and uh, the rest is history. What was it, a long courtship or were you no, instant yeah, love? No, I was, I was really taken. I really admired. Um, there was a great – Andy Pavier did a, ba- a profile once of the press gallery covering, I think, the Bob Carr premiere election. and. Kerry was just this indefatigable ABC correspondent by that stage for the um, ABC TV News. Andy Pavia wrote, Kerry Douglas's quiet smile belies her awesome energy. And it was absolutely true because she was so hardworking. And it struck me that in journalism, women have to work 10 times harder than men do. And she was a classic illustration of that. She was working for this very blokey radio station where a lot of the execs were doing cocaine at lunchtime and going out for boozy lunches. And she she was just this absolute stalwart. And this is back in the days when commercial radio really did make the best journalism in Australia. They were breaking stories and she was very proud to be part of it. And she was doing the same at the ABC as well. And how long have you been married? Uh, 33 years, I think. No, oh, mate. Parallel lives. 31. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned religion. Every song that is chosen on Five My Life gets put on the Spotify Five My Life playlist. Great. It's a fantastic playlist because it's obviously completely eclectic. Sure. The algorithms couldn't give it to you. But the ship song is already on it. Oh, really? Terrific. Now, you mentioned religion. Uh, Rabbi Jeffrey Cammons chose it. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. A sensational song. And, and your religious journey, atheist from year dot or? Look, as you probably know, anybody who's been through a private boys boarding school becomes irreligious from the very moment that they have religion thrust down their throat. <laughs> this is day. your plan for me? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I still remember I had a great chaplain at school, uh, Reverend Latham, and he was a lovely man. And he recognized in me that I was interested in spiritual ideas, but I loathed the bullshit of conventional religion. And I used to ask questions like, you know, why do we have to believe in God? And if we don't have faith, isn't that anti-scientific? Aren't you telling us in the rest of our classes that we have to apply the scientific method? Why do we have to suspend judgment with the belief in a supreme intelligence? And he was great because he would intellectually engage. Now, your fourth choice. I love the way people respond to the choices on Five of My Life because you can be creative with it. So people have chosen my bathtub. Uh, one of my guests chose in the middle of a sentence when I'm writing. And you have chosen, you tricky trickster, uh, anywhere in New Zealand's bush. I, as a young boy, didn't realise how much I loved being in the outdoors. And f- for me, the most incredible thing I ever did at school was the Duke of Edinburgh Award, where we were sent out and I was the nerdy little SWAT, the intellectual SWAT. But I loved the idea of learning how to navigate. And so I was the navigator for the orienteers that I was with. And we hiked pretty much my entire teenage years, most of the great walks of New Zealand. So I spent a large part of my school days under canvas, hiking and and exploring. And 
we had teachers who were wonderful people who encouraged us to push ourselves. And I remember we stayed in a snow cave on the side of Mount Cook and um, we um, we were way, way up in the Southern Alps and we knew that if we went outside, we would literally be blown off the ridge. It was so exciting. And so when I see the New Zealand tourism ads these days for Aotearoa, I, uh, I tear up. I really do. I miss the New Zealand bush intensely. And whilst I, I love Australia, Australia has given me all the opportunities that I've sought and and tried to achieve. Um, there's something about the New Zealand bush that is mystical to me. And I have a, a love, because as a little boy, I used to go hiking in the bush with um, Maori friends and um, Pakeha friends. And there was a, an affinity. I remember the little Maori boys that I was with would touch the trees and they would talk to the tree spirits as they walked through the bush. And it was the most normal thing in the world to me, the idea that a, a child could communicate spiritually with something in the bush. And there's a mysticism about the New Zealand bush that I love. And as much as I can, I'd love to get back there more often. The, the parallels are, quite frankly, spooky. So, so you've done the Milf, Milford Track? Yes, I have, yeah. So, so I did that, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago. And it one of the, the most remarkable, fun, enjoyable weeks, the whole trip of I my life. I used to cut that every summer. Uh, my job briefly was ah. to be one of the, the people who helped clear the track and make it ready for posh customers like you. So it was, was Kate and I did it in a posh, glampy way. But then I enjoyed it so much and liked the New Zealand countryside so much that for my 60th birthday, my deep, deep desire, which has been arranged is that I go off and do the Able Tasman. Take a raincoat. That's my best right. advice to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, well so apparently it's not as hilly, but it involves a bit of kayaking. And yeah. it just, just for me, just the vibe of I'm going to go to a beautiful place and walk through it and, and chat to my wife. You go, it's, it's, it's my idea of a perfect holiday. Yeah. One of the first things I ever did with Kerry was I took her to Mount Cook and we were running through grass and I was doing a kind of a, you know, this is the sound of music. <laughs> the hills are alive. The sound of music. And she was going, Ross, Ross, be careful for snakes. And I was going, there are no snakes in New Zealand. And that's one of the joys in New Zealand is you can literally lie down in the tundra. You can push your way through the bush and there was practically nothing that can kill you. Yeah. And uh, that's the joy of New Zealand. It's It really is. It's a prehistoric place. And I love the incredible strength of the Māori people and the way that they, um, I mean, as a student at law school there, I studied the Treaty of Waitangi uh, under Geoffrey Palmer, who went on to become the New Zealand Prime Minister. And Geoffrey, to his great credit, finally, as Attorney General and Prime Minister, pushed through the enactment of the Treaty of Waitangi to make it law. And a lot of my Māori friends who were selling dope at the Lord Vesti Party of Freezing Works when I was a little boy, they, um, they're now um, huge landowners because they've been able to regain some of the land that they lost under the treaty. We're moving from earthly outdoors to outer earthly outdoors because your fifth choice on Five My Life, which is always the possession, it's often my favourite of my guests' choices. You have, and I quote, uh, chosen a signed Apollo 14 patch signed by astronaut and lunar module pilot Edgar Mitchell when he went to the moon. Mate, oh, we haven't had one of those before. Tell us about it. I've written a book about UFOs. Um, UAPs, as they're more politely known, unidentified anomalous phenomena. And That's I wrote, not going to catch on. It's, no, it's UFOs, mate. Yeah, it's UFOs. <laughs> right. And, and uh, I wrote a book called In Plain Sight, which is still in the bookshops, and I, it's being re-released actually in uh, September in the US. And it, it's become a hugely popular issue. I've done documentaries about it as well. And one of the stories I tell in my book is I met a source called The Spaceman, 
who had access to Dr. Edgar Mitchell's archives after he died. And the spaceman was one of Edgar's closest friends. And um, I have to use a pseudonym because he asked to remain anonymous. But the spaceman essentially gave me a document which has become one of the most controversial documents in recent UFO history because it purports to record a conversation between a former head of the US Defense Intelligence Agency, Admiral Tom Wilson, and um, uh, a guy called Dr. Eric Davis about what is alleged to be a crash retrieval program where the US allegedly recovered non-human craft and that this has been secretly withheld from the public for 60, 70 years. And that's what I've been investigating for a lot of the last few years. I I left 60 Minutes about um, five years ago, and I looked around and thought, what's a book I want to tell? What's the most stigmatized and taboo subject in the world? UFOs. And to my shock, when I started talking to people in US defense and intelligence, Rather than poo-pooing the subject and saying it's all rubbish and these craft that people are seeing are really some kind of secret American technology, they started telling me, look, it's real. There is a a real phenomenon. There's a mystery there. And so one of my sources, the spaceman, who'd been a close personal friend of Edgar Mitchell, who gave me this document, which essentially shows and records the uh, alleged investigations by one person into this purported crash retrieval program and reverse engineering program that allegedly is still going on inside the US government and private aerospace. The spaceman also had a very coveted uh, patch that Edgar Mitchell literally wore all the way to the moon. And I was awestruck when, as a result of our friendship, he gave it to me. And um, uh, the idea of actually having something in my possession which has actually been to the moon yeah. is extraordinary. And I'm fascinated by that amazing period of American exceptionalism that you and I grew up with as children where America funded the Apollo space program. And it defined a lot of my childhood. I remember looking up at the moon and thinking, wow, there are people on that object right now. And I remember thinking what an incredible achievement it was and how amazing America was. And it wasn't until much later in my adolescence that I came across this book, which told me about the the problems and issues with American foreign policy. And it fascinated me as a journalist how, on the one hand, this great country could do such an incredible thing as to achieve the technological marvel of getting humans safely to the moon and back and making this incredible discovery for all humankind. And yet, on the other hand, it could find itself because of stupid, illogical decision-making, irrational decisions, trapped in wars that even now it acknowledges were serious mistakes. To close the loop on that, because to bring it back to your second choice, is dear old Edgar. There's a wonderful quote. It really messed with his head seeing the Earth from space. The overview effect. Yes. One of his uh, quotes is, you develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, in international politics looks so petty in that you go mate it's a small little tennis ball in a huge vast universe and you're squabbling over you know where we draw the line on the bloody map i mean lads talk about missing the point so just a month ago 
to sort of add the, the dot, if you like, to the conclusion of my investigations into UFOs. I've continued my investigations. And just a month ago, I did an interview in America with a guy called David Grush, who was a very senior, very, very well-informed senior intelligence officer with the American National Geospatial Agency and the National Reconnaissance Office. Very brilliant man. And he has made the allegation, and he's willing to testify publicly about it, that the US is, as Edgar Mitchell alleged, and as that memo that I was given by the spaceman alleges, the US is allegedly in possession of non-human right. technology. And this story's gone around the world in the last few weeks, and um, I'm still ridiculed by some of my yep. medical media colleagues for, for following the story up. But if they only knew the people like David Grush, who I'm talking to, people inside the US military and intelligence community and private aerospace, who are telling me that this is real. Yeah. And that if we do want to learn of thinking us of ourselves as humans, and not just as Australians or Chinese, Russian or American, one of the best ways of doing that would be to answer that fundamental question, are we alone? Yeah. And that's why I think as a journalist, it's the most important story of all. And yet so much of the media giggles. Yeah. Well, no, and, I, I would imagine that 80% of my gorgeous listeners would go, serious, gorgeous, lovely Ross has gone is um, <laughs> he, gone tropo. Uh, um, he, oh, my God, he, he's talking about UFOs. I mean, you, you are bloody delightful and extraordinarily intelligent and very, very good at what you do. And so it needs people as credible as you to do it, because if you are sort of swivel eyed, you know, hair sticking everywhere, bloke living in the mountains, you will be dismissed completely. Yeah. You'll just be dismissed a little bit. <laughs> well, the good thing, Nudge, is that we're going to get an answer right. because the US Congress People don't realize this. The U.S. Congress has actually passed laws that require the Pentagon, the intelligence community, and private aerospace to reveal – To release the spaceship. But There's a bipartisan push now in the Congress that literally in black and white demands that aerospace companies reveal any unidentified anomalous phenomena material or, quote, non-Earth tech – yeah. that they have in their position. How good are you going to feel when you are vindicated? I'm looking forward to it greatly. <laughs> no, because, I mean, it's interesting because there's a dissonance between what people treat the subject like yeah, in, of course. In, in public and the private attitudes of people that I speak to literally all the time. A lot of people say, you can't keep secrets. Governments can't keep secrets. Governments leak. And believe me, they can. Yeah. Not for much longer. God, I've loved talking to you. I, I didn't know we had those things in common. So f is there something, a misunderstanding about you that you would like to correct? Because if there is, now's the time to do it, mate. You've got the talking stick. I think a lot of people, a lot of my friends maybe think I'm very unemotional and very remote. And I hope that what I've told you today explains a lot more of what I really am. Well, what a great answer, because I, I think it actually, it has, because I've known you for a while, and yeah. and yeah, I think you are a bit of a strange cove, slightly yeah. remote. And so I, I would... I, I, a lot of people have said to me, I'm quite intellectually aloof, I come across yeah. as a bit of a snob, and I think I'm better than everybody else, and I truly don't. No. What I am, I'm very guarded and shy. I'm a very, very shy, quite introverted person who 
by sheer dint of the fact that I love investigating things, I found myself in a very public role as an investigative journalist. And, you know, sometimes uh, as a journalist, you do things that are highly controversial and it puts you in the public eye in a way that I find quite painful. Uh, And a lot of people mistakenly think that I'm... um, arrogant about it and I, I truly am not there was something uh on school sport standing on the touchline I, I like you I, I i overreacted to my parents never coming to anything of mine of going to everything of my kids and someone once said to Kay, oh nigel he's aloof or arrogant or a wanker or something because he stands by himself not with the other parents and you go what i'm terrified <laughs> I, I, i'd love to <laughs> i'd love to go over and, I, I wish they'd come and talk to me or yeah. i'm not over there because yeah. i think I, i'm over there because i'm lonely and a bit awkward yeah no it's funny actually because we've just Kerry and I have just moved down to the southern highlands or up to the southern highlands and one of the joys I'm having is is to take time to actually make friends yeah and uh, I've never had like you know I went into the gym the other day and this old codger waved at me and went Ross and he's an old cop he's an old um swass cop and he knows me from journalism and um we recognized each other when I walked into the gym and we've become mates, you know, we've had a beer together and it's nice. I actually think for people who might have some of the trauma and, and, and issues that you and I might have, is that it does become easier when you're older because you have let go. I'm, I'm just me, yeah. right? So when you meet that bloke in the gym, you, you, I would imagine, are not trying to prove anything. You're not trying to prove you can do more press-ups than him or you're a very clever, you've won, was it, five Walkleys? You know, he doesn't give a shit that you've won 20 Walkleys. He, you're just Ross at the gym. Yeah, and true. and that there's a liberation in that. You're a lovely rooster, mate, and I wish you lots of valuable friendships in the future. There is one further final question. Who would you like to hear on Five My Life next and why? A lot of us outside of New Zealand really admire her, but friends of mine who still live in New Zealand loathe her, and a lot of them are lefties. And I think she'd be fascinating to see whether or not she's got the willingness to be open and candid about mistakes. I've made mistakes. Boy, do journalists make mistakes. I've made mistakes. Politicians don't like often admitting mistakes. Scott Morrison seems to have a problem with admitting he made mistakes with RoboDead, for example. <laughs> Wouldn't it be magnanimous of him to just basically say, look, we cocked up. We yeah, made I just totally stuffed that I, up. I made How, a what were we mistake. thinking? And oh, that's what I was hoping was going to happen when he yeah. was asked about it the other week. But I'm fascinated with Jacinta Ardern because I've got friends who've worked for her and they know her quite well. And I think she would be a fascinating interview. Ross Coulthard, thank you so much for coming on Fire by Life and sharing your choices. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you follow Five of My Life, you might enjoy my latest book, Smart, Stupid and 60. In it, I write about a number of the issues discussed on the show. It's the 20-year follow-on from my first book, Fat, Forty and Fired. If you have any feedback on the book or suggestions for the show, please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.